live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. A two-hour show. No, this isn't Gilligan's Island. Welcome. This is Yona Bud. Welcome to the first of our two-hour shows beginning now through the winter months and into the spring. Between 9 and 11, we'll be here doing what we do. So twice as much of me and twice as much of you, and we'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400 or 888 talk If you'd want to text because you think it's cooler and easier to do, 6474 888-0086-647-488-0086. We want to hear from you. That's what we're doing. This is Road to Recovery. We're in the studio tonight with Sophia on the board and our good friend and supervisor, Corey, who's overlooking and taking calls from you all. So let's keep Corey busy. He's a little lonely these days, needs someone to talk to. Uh, we're all a little lonely these days. We're going to get to that later on in the show. But um really want to talk to you tonight about stuff that really matters. We've got a couple hours, got a whole bunch of guests. Um, and this is the stuff that I think we're all thinking about. And I don't know how many of us want to actually talk about it, but stuff that we're definitely thinking about, right? Um, and the first question I have for you, because we have an open board here for the first segment anyway, um, we'll open and close the board depending on guests and what we're doing here. So just stay with us. We've got a couple hours, so, you know, hunker down, get cozy, put on that favorite T-shirt or sweatshirt or the toque that you like and uh, pretend like you're rooting for your favorite team. And we'll see if we can help people uh, deal with their stuff day by day and minute by minute. That's what we do here. That's what we do together. And it uh, can't be done if it's not a team effort. So we need to hear from you, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK. You feel safe these days? That's the question. You feel safe going to the mall so you know we all talk about guns and gangs and we're going to be dealing with that here tonight um guns and gangs and violence and you know it's always in those quote unquote those neighborhoods you know um but there's a story here that goes not so long ago here past week uh where there were shots fired inside sherway gardens mall now i don't know if you've ever been to sherway gardens mall but it's anything, it's definitely not in a uh, underserved, underprivileged area. Um, this is a s- area where people who, you know, belong to golf clubs and drive fancy cars and live in million-dollar homes, this is where they go to shop, similar to Yorkdale for many people and many other malls like Eaton Center and so on. But Sherway's kind of out there. It's, it's a bit of a, you know, it's not really in the mainstream, doesn't have the same kind of downtown traffic, for example, that the Eaton Center might or some of the other malls, you know, like Yorkdale, which is, uh, you know, kind of sandwiched in uh, into some uh, neighborhoods that uh, could really use some help. But anyway, Shots went off in uh, Sherway Gardens. People were freaking out. Uh, then the place was locked down. Police officers say there were fires. Emergency crews were sent, and uh, they were looking for some people. Apparently, uh, police officers told about two groups of people involved in a physical fight on both sides. Then one of them pulled out a firearm and started shooting. People close to the shooting scene ran away. Many inside the mall were forced to stay inside the facility as lockdown was imposed. Uh, an update issued by the mall staff at that point referred all questions to Toronto police and the mall was closed for the rest of that day. So big deal, right? You're going to the mall and, and you want to go to the mall with your kids, right? Or maybe go to the mall with your grandma. You know, my, my wife heads out to to that mall because I believe there's a, a store in there that's not available anywhere else and we really like it. So she's there often. Uh, I don't know how often, but often. Um, you know, as she is in all the other malls. 
Are you nervous? That's what I want to hear from you. That's what we want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Are you thinking twice about going to the mall? Because you might get shot or you might be involved in a shooting or get locked into the place. A lot of people say, I'm not worried about getting shot. I'm worried about getting locked into the place. I can't get out if I have, you know, if they're in the middle of a lockdown here, right? So I want to hear from you. Tell me what you think about that. We're going to carry on and keep talking about it. I'll tell you something. The other night, my wife and I were sitting on our patio and we live in uh, the northern part of uh, Toronto, you know, just before kind of Thornhill area that way. Sitting, uh, we have a... You know, we have a, a lovely little place that has a patio or a rooftop patio, and we were able to sit on our patio and enjoy a lot of quiet, even though we're, you know, very close to Young Street. And then we were sitting there, and all of a sudden we heard, bat, 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 right? And I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me. And at the same time, we've been following this helicopter, right? Because, you know, we're looking at the stars, and we see this helicopter circling around and around. Then we heard, bat, 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 bat. and I'm like, is that, that's, I don't think that's fireworks right? So we're having this conversation about we don't think it's fireworks and it's likely gunshots. And, you know, the, the police copter that's flying around is likely looking for the perpetrator in some way, shape or form, although they didn't have their light on, right? I, I, I have parents now that are calling me uh, all the, for this past week, calling me about taking their kids back to school shopping and, 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 their, and their kids don't want to go because they're experiencing such huge anxiety about, you know, potential gun violence. It's all over social media. It's all over everything. Mom wasn't great about it either. She wasn't quite sure she wanted to do it. She wasn't quite sure she wanted to go to the mall. I'll tell you, Yorkdale's one of my favorite malls. And when I, because of my anxiety issues and so on, I never go to the malls when they're busy. So I'm always the guy there at like three minutes after 10 when they open or, you know, you know half an hour before they close. Now, just for me, it's to avoid, to avoid uh, the crowds. But now I see it as a safety feature, a safety factor, something I got to really think about. You know, I want to take my grandkids to, you know, one of the malls and go buy toys, for example, or, you know, okay, so educational stuff. Would you feel better if I said I'm going to buy them educational stuff? I'm not. I'm going to buy them toys and things that their parents probably don't want them to have. But you know what? I get to do that as a grandfather. That's what Zadies do. We get to buy our grandchildren stuff they're not supposed to have. But getting back to the case here, I'm afraid to take them to the mall. I'm looking to find a Toys R Us outside somewhere, you know, then where it's not attached to any kind of facility, but that's maybe not enough either. I mean, talk about the shootings that are going on, you know, outside of restaurants, outside of, 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 you know, other stores and other facilities and, uh, you know, ca- uh, cafes. Like, where are we safe? Like, are we safe? Is there, are you safe in your neighborhood? Like, I live in a quiet neighborhood. People here all, you know, seem to go to work and, they, and their kids seem to be well-fed and, and, and well-dressed for the most part. You know, I live in a neighborhood where everybody's fairly, you know, kind with one another. It's, you know, there are a lot of immigrant people living in the same, you know, newcomers to Canada living in the same, in the same building from all over the world. And, and they're wonderful neighbors. We live in a wonderful community. But I heard gunshots last night. And they weren't that far from where I live with my wife where my grandchildren come and play in the park, where we walk our dog out and behind the building through the neighborhoods, where I see people hand in hand, husbands and wives and children and mothers and fathers with their kids walking and pushing strollers and such. That's where I heard gunshots. So I don't know. Are we safe anywhere? I, all I think is we've got to be really heads up on this. You've got to be really vigilant. You've got to pay attention and not find yourself in a place that you probably shouldn't be. 
So that's what we're talking about next. We're talking about gun violence, and we're going to talk to a guy who understands it and polices it and does what he can to keep our city as safe as possible. He's a friend of the show. His name is Superintendent Ron Taverner. And as soon as we come back from break, we're going to talk to Superintendent Taverner, ask him some questions, and uh, see if we can drill through some of this stuff and find out uh, what we can do, if anything, and what's what's happening. What are the politicians, the police officers, those in, in control? What are they doing to make sure that our malls and neighborhoods are safe for you and me and our kids and grandchildren and everyone else that wants to be out there and not have to worry about hearing something that sounds like fireworks? This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Occasionally this kind of event is going to happen and we just have to be cautious and prepared to deal with it and do what they did here. Their safety, security was on top of it here in the mall immediately. There was a very quick police response. Our tactical teams responded with the assistance of Peel Regional Police. Great coordination here as well and they were able to secure the mall quickly. That's Chief of Police talking about the uh, mall event at uh, Sherry Gardens. Thank you back. Thank you for coming back. This is Yona Bud. I'm here in the studio. We're talking about uh, the, on the road to recovery here, talking about gun violence and so on. We have uh, things around uh, that whole guns and gangs thing, but we do have Ruth, uh, Ruth on the phone, uh, and she shops at Sherway, and she doesn't feel safe. So we're going to have to do a quick chat with her before we talk to uh, Superintendent Tavener. But I do want to give a shout-out to my friend Paige, who's a constant listener, and uh, we thank her so much for her interest and for following us and her kind wishes for our two-hour show so uh can we have a listen to ruth ruth are you still there i sure am i enjoy your show Um, thank you so thank you so much i um i live in alderwood which is just south of uh, sherway gardens now i've been going there 30 years um no we shouldn't have to put up with this we i've seen gangs really of six go in and sometimes some more come in um, I think there should be some sort of place where um, there's a detector at Sherway Gardens. I, no, I don't agree with the officer or the. Um, so, so Ruth, so Ruth, only. So Ruth, do you think we should have? I mean, I don't. I, I need to cut in so I can ask you questions. I apologize. I don't want to be rude, uh, but we, we have limited time. So you think you would you feel safer? You're talking about having yeah. uh, metal detectors, like gun yeah. gun detectors yeah. at the entrances. Oh, yes, I would. I am uh, just had knee surgery. I'm going back in on Tuesday. Will I feel secure going back into Sherway? No, I never have, really, uh, with things that's been changing and other things. And we had a group come in. Um, I forget what it was for. And then this other group, you know, started to fight with them. We had to get away from them because they were fighting. And I guess the police finally did come. But with regards to the um, the guns and everything, there should be metal detectors to protect us now because it's getting worse. I'm scared of being, I'm scared of going up there. Uh, uh, listen, I, pre- I, pre- I appreciate the call. We're going to talk to Chief Tavener, see what he says about it, and we wish you well on your surgery, and please check in with us uh, next week and let us know how you're doing. But uh, thank you so much, Ruth, for the call and, uh, and the kind wishes. Chief Tavener, you, uh, you listened to what she had to say, I think, right? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Sad, right, brother? It is very sad. I mean, when people start feeling that way about their their safety and and getting those feelings that they're not safe going to a public place like a mall, it's uh, very sad, and it it doesn't speak very well of uh, the violence that's taking place, particularly the gun violence. 
So, you know, you've, we, we've had you on before, and uh, you're, you're a good friend of the show and uh, definitely a, a, a policeman's policeman for sure. But you've been at this game a long time. I mean, you know, I've also been on the street a long time doing what I do, and we've often talked a little bit about that. But, you know, the, the you got to be shaking your head and just thinking of where we've come to because it has to be a dark moment for you based on, on what you've seen over all these years. I mean, sure, we had biker gangs back in the day and all kinds of other gang issues back in the day. But is it just me, or is it becoming super brazen? Like, these guys just have no no shame. Well, you're absolutely right. We take the, the situation at, at Sherway uh, a week or so ago, uh, a few weeks before, a shooting at a kid's birthday party. There's, you know, the, it just seems that, that there's no boundaries anymore, that that uh, anything goes, and, and you know, it's it just speaks to the level of, uh, or the number of guns that are on the street, it's it's terrible. And then then in a lot of cases, we we the police go to these situations, and nobody wants to talk to the police. And I, I I do understand why, but without information, it makes it very difficult for us to do our job as well. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, the, 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 I guess the, where we're at today is we're at a point where, you know, people are talking, like we just heard Ruth, she's obviously sounds like she's a, a senior, um, you know, and she, you know, she's talking about, she, she'd be okay with, uh, with metal detectors. Like, you know, I, I never wanted to live in a place where they needed to have metal detectors and we needed to be patted down when, you know, you went in and out of a building and, and, uh, um, I'm sure that's not the kind of place you want to police either, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, and the reality is that really feasible in a, in a place, for example, like Sherway or or any other uh, large facility where people are, are going in and out. It makes it very restrictive. And, and uh, you know, do we want to live like that? I don't think we do. So what's the, I mean, what do you tell your guys? What do you tell your, your team? What do you tell your coppers every day? You know, the, or what are their, you know, obviously the people below you, but when they're, when they're doing roll call and you know, like certainly we've seen it on TV, I assume that takes place, but when they're doing some kind of roll call in the, in the beginning of shift, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do police officers hit the streets knowing that, you know, really no place is safe? Well, you know, obviously we talk to our officers uh, every day, as you as you've said, roll call or we call it parade, yeah. and uh, we talk to our, our officers of what has taken place the previous uh, twenty four hours. Talk about the level of violence. Talk about people that may be wanted for certain things. All those right. things, and we try and we try and make sure that the officers are aware that our job is to keep the community safe and keep their their uh their colleagues safe and that that's our function out there uh, along what's, with many others but that that's one of our priorities what's the, what's the profile of of these shooters are these kids that are are these kids are these uh are these perpetrators that are coming from outside of let's say the sherway neighborhoods and coming to sherway as a as a as a place to congregate or are these you know are these kids that are perhaps not from the same um you know profile as uh, as we always talk about constantly with you know underprivileged kids that come from you know neighborhoods that need a lot of more a lot more of everything from everybody um or you know, like is it the same people in different neighborhoods or what's that profile look like i don't think you can profile it because you know you you could say there was a certain situation at sherway or or any other situation where there's been gunfire and it's 
it, one could be totally different from the other on on uh, who the perpetrators are, who the people that are being shot. I mean, we we have situations of road rage, for example, where yeah. where people are pulling guns on on other people, and you know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to to most of us. You know, and we're back to the same question: Where the gun, guns come from? How do we stop them from getting them? And all that stuff. Are, are, you, are we making any progress? I know that's kind of out, perhaps outside of your your you know day to day requirements. I guess it's more of a border kind of thing. Perhaps I'm wrong. Is that a is that a Toronto police thing? Is there are there the guns and gangs guys? That's what they're they're focused on, right? Trying to find weapons on the street. That's right. That's uh, that's what guns and gangs are are out there to. Uh, try and deal with the, the uh, illicit guns that are out there, but it's also every officer's job. I mean, we have lots of officers that that uh, uh, stop vehicles and they end up finding guns, or, or they are involved in foot chases and and uh, perpetrators are, are carrying guns or or toss the guns. Uh, just today, we we uh, in a park in Scarborough, we got a call and there was a loaded uh, automatic uh, shotgun. Uh, wow. Just laying in the park. I mean, these, these are the wow. situations that are taking place. Wow, that's uh, that could lead to a whole bunch of really bad stuff, right? These uh, aband- ab- abandoned weapons. Um, you know, you're uh, as I said on the outset. You know, you're one of those police officers, one of those guys that really cares about what you do in your community. And if people don't know, uh, we're talking to Superintendent Ron Tavener. Um, the where we are is we're we're you know. You're out there talking to people. You know, you're not one of those uh, ivory tower kind of policemen, right? So you're, I know that you're out there talking to people because I've seen you. So what do you tell the mothers and, and the kids and people that come to you in, these na- in the neighborhoods where they're, you know, they're struggling? What do, you, what do you tell them? Well, it's, it's very difficult when, when they see the level of violence that's taking place around them. But what do you say to a mother that's lost her son, for example, or, yeah. or, or in situations like that? There's no real words that you can really say that that really has any real meaning when when you're in that situation and you've lost a loved one to gunfire. Man, that's something that we can't even imagine, and we've seen it too many times. We've seen uh, mothers that go through agony and families that go through agony in these situations. It's it's very difficult. Well, listen, my friend, um, I'm glad that you took the call. I'm glad you continue to show up with us here on the show, and we'll definitely have you back if you'll come. And uh, all I can say is thank you for your service, and we hope that you stay safe and so do uh, all of your uh, all of your crew. And um, quick question, you a ner- little nervous when you go to the mall these days? <laughs> uh, no, I try not to think about that, quite frankly. I, I try not to really concentrate on, on those sort of situations. You do have to be aware of your surroundings. There's no doubt about that. But, but uh, I, I think we just have to try and work through this and be safe. And, and I just urge people if if they if they say things or they know of uh, people who have illicit guns, please you can call police, call Crime Stoppers anonymously. You know, we we need that help. We really do. Thank you very much, my friend, Superintendent Rom Tavener, Toronto Police Service. Uh, we'll be right back. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. 
And welcome back to Road to Recovery. This is your host, Yona Bud. Thank you for joining me tonight. We're talking about all kinds of stuff. We're uh, continuing on our conversation about guns and gangs and violence. Um, you know, a man is dead to taking a hospital uh, shooting outside Toronto apartment building. Police say 52-year-old man has died and two men have been injured after shooting outside a West End Toronto apartment building on Saturday night. 12-year-old boy has been taken to the hospital in a serious condition after officials say he was shot multiple times outside a playground in New York, the North York complex. And it just goes on and on and on. I have uh, with us um, on the show here tonight two friends of mine, two brothers, and a friend of the show, and we uh, have them uh, regularly uh, help us uh, try to unravel and understand this kind of gun violence. I have my good friend uh, uh, Louis Louis March from uh, he's the founder of Zero Gun Violence, and uh, Marcel Wilson, the founder and president of One by One Movement. Thank you, my brothers, for joining me tonight. How are you both doing? Keeping busy, my friend. Thanks for having me back. This is a oh, pleasure. Marcel, how you doing, man? I know you're right in the crunch of it, eh? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And thank you for having me, brother. It's a pleasure. So uh, I wish we could talk about, you know, positive results and uh, something more than paint on playgrounds, because uh, that's all I seem to feel. But, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this, and um, I'm going to throw it up to, to Louis first, but um, we're, we're looking at this, and people are sitting back, and, you know, if you heard the beginning of the show, and I was hearing gunshots from my from my terrace, uh, uh, my, my patio here where we live, uh, you know, Young and Steel's area, you know, and, you know, it's everywhere. Like, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And it's not just gun violence anymore. It's it's knife and, and stabbing violence. Like you might have to change the name, Louis, to to you know just zero violence. Um, but where are we going, man? Like just you know, every time you and I have a conversation, we're trying to figure out what to do next. And I know I, I see that both of you are talking to politicians and experts and trying to share you know what what the real stories are. And Marcel's out there pounding the pavement, working with the families and, and the people that are affected by it. Are we making any progress, Louis? You know. Uh... What what we see now in the city of Toronto is the the level of fear and despair is increasing with every shooting because there's no, let's say, quote-unquote, safe zones anymore with a recent shooting at Sherway Gardens in a shopping mall, broad daylight, right? We had the one in the playground in Driftwood, right? Like, where is it safe today? Where do you feel safe? And uh, that's an indication that we're not doing the right things because the shootings continue, the level of fear and despair increases, and the safe zones that we thought were traditionally safe zones have now been engaged in violent actions. And you're right. It's not only the gun violence, it is the other forms of violence taking place, the stabbings and et cetera. Fear and despair. Give me a quick. Uh, give the listeners a quick, uh, a real quick description of what you mean when you say fear and despair. Well, if you go shopping in a mall, and that's the only thing on your mind, then yeah. you hear a loud noise. Now, the first thing that might come to your mind is that gunshot. Yeah. Whereas first time you might think something else, or if you're walking down the street and you hear a loud noise, whether it's firecrackers whether it's fireworks, whatever it is, the first thing that's going to come to your mind now is is that gunfire and how do I protect myself? Where do I run? Where do I hide? And it could happen in Yorkville. It could happen at Yorkdale. It could happen anywhere now across the city. And that's what's concerning is that the violence 
is now contributing to a level of fear and despair that we've seldom seen in certain neighborhoods that might be normalized, you know? Yeah. Uh, but or, in other neighborhoods now, we're seeing things happening that now people are jumping. The first uh, thinking is gunfire and safety. Marcel, uh, Marcel Wilson, founder and president of One by One. Um, you're an ex-gangster. We've been uh, open with each other and, and on the air for many times. You know, your story is very well known to lots of people. You've shared it with many people. You were a banger at one point. This isn't like the bangers of the old days, though, bro. Like, this is nothing like, like you you know, back in the day, like I was, you know, I you know, had my own, you know, sort of uh, uh, criminal activity in life. You didn't do stuff around kids and families, right? It's like, what's happening here, man? You're, you're, and you're in the trenches. You're talking to the families. You're talking to the gangsters. You're talking to everybody. I think, you know, you've got probably the vet, best voice right now to, to share what, you know, what's the thinking behind the perpetrators and, and, and how, you, how do you manage this? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's become a very serious problem, obviously. But, um, you know, the ideologies have changed, Jonah. Um, the, the reasoning behind, you know, criminal activity or gangbanging itself has changed. Um, in my day, you also wouldn't see, you know, middle class youth engaging in, in this type, this level of violence. Um, but now, you, now you're seeing it. But there are so many variables. There's so many layers that lend to this. And when I got into this kind of work, you know, I came in bright eyed and bushy tailed thinking, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the type of resources we have and, and the connections we have to the streets that we can make a difference. And the public. There's a general kind of prejudice, you know, that, that it, it ends and it stops with the shooter. But there's so much, there's so many layers beneath that that the public are not aware of, that only people in my position, in Louis' position, and all the other good people out there fighting this fight really see. And for me, what I'm finding now, now that we've been pulled in, you know, politically into this fight and see all the different ends, you know, the, the, the head doesn't know what the elbow is doing when, you know, you have governments that, that can't get it together to put things in place properly for, for you know, cohesion. It, when you have agencies and groups that all have agendas that operate in silos and can't get it together. And Brother Louis has been, you know, fighting very hard for a yeah, while, you know, to, to try and pull these groups together. But all of these all of these things contribute to this mess and it continues to get worse and worse and worse they think we don't care so therefore it's like why do they care about themselves they don't they don't care uh louis come back to you here uh louis march uh, founder of gear zero gun violence <clears throat> you guys feel vindicated i mean I, I maybe not the right word it's the only one i could think of at the time vindicated insofar as it's not just false stuff it's not just jane and finch it's not just region park it's not just the the the, the quote unquote those neighborhoods now we're now we're you know we're openly seeing that um, people whose uh, complexion and background and economic status uh, don't fit the profile of quote unquote the the neighborhoods that everyone thinks all this stuff takes place. But I don't see any white faces on television. I don't see the you know I see the moms that that you and Marcel put together and the families and the aunties and the grandmoms and the dads that get up and and, and talk on TV about their loss and about the the the, the issues in their neighborhoods and and so on. I don't see any white faces on TV going, wow, we live around the corner from uh, Sherway Gardens and me and my neighbors now want to stand up and make a difference cuz now it's in my neighborhood. Like 
it, we're not not only do we hear it and see it and know that it's going on, but for some reason the quote unquote privilege group, if I can call them that, it's probably not fair. But you know those that don't come from the same profile that we're constantly talking about of underserviced, undermanaged, undercared for, underloved, you know, kids in neighborhoods. Where are those faces, bro? Well, I think a lot of society in general, the gun violence takes place in in certain neighborhoods, right? Traditionally, well, maybe, maybe or traditionally, but, yeah, no, but not no, anymore. It's expanding, it's expanding yeah. out. And uh, for example, you had a shooting at Sherway Gardens. Where is the people that were there, right? Uh, and what are they saying? And what are they doing? It's concerning that there's only certain people that are speaking out against this. We work with the mothers. We work with the young people that have been involved, that have done the crime, done the time, and want to make a difference. Uh, we've spoken to all the major key stakeholders, but we can't get them together at the table to come up with a proper strategic action plan to intervene and interrupt the cycle of violence. And now it's spreading over. And uh, Marcel alluded to it. There's so much different factors right now. The influencers are different from 20 years ago, like social media. You know, filming a video clip uh, in a neighborhood, uh, threatening another neighborhood, another ops area, and then somebody coming in because you're doing it live <laughs> and coming and shooting up the neighborhood, right? Yeah. So it's not contained anymore, Yona. And we have to have a greater outcry for politicians to see this as a priority. If it's just the same old voices going out and speaking, uh, I don't think we're getting the traction that we need from the government leaders, whether it's federal, whether it's provincial, or whether it's municipal. And that is concerning. It is concerning because it's now, as I said, the level of fear and despair that's taken place. Yeah. It's affecting everybody. It's not just you know, in, in, you know, in certain neighborhoods anymore. Marcel, you know, um, we've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, Marcel, the, uh, you know, what Louis was just saying, you know, with stakeholders and we need to see people, what, what I was saying in my earlier comment, and I'm still not sure I understand it, um, why aren't there people that are, you know, are showing up in nice cars and well-dressed and are affected by this stuff in their neighborhoods? I don't see any of those people marching with you or going to you, going with you and Louis and the team uh, to meet with the stakeholders and, 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 the, and, the, and the politicians. Maybe if it didn't just look like these were, you know, people from, quote-unquote, those neighborhoods, and they were more like people that came from my neighborhoods standing up, I, I think that would make a difference. What do you think? Well, absolutely. And, and I will tell you, you know, they exist. But a lot of the times what I'm seeing happening, my perspective, when these things spill over into the quote-unquote safe zones and communities want to get involved, there are there are so many different paths and so much, so much, so much different messaging out there that they get lost in the sauce themselves. When, when they're looking for the right way, the right thing to do to help, there, there are so many voices pulling them in different directions that have political agendas behind them. And a lot of the times their intentions are good. They came in thinking, hey, I want to help. What can I do? But they get pulled in a direction and then they're told, okay, hey, you know, maybe that's not the best way. When you're when you're looking at actual efficacy, right? But they, they you know, they they're now on that path, and they decide they decide they're going to kind of stick with their guns rather than explore. Like one thing I'm learning 
is a lot of the times people from the communities we work with are being told what they need in their communities right. to fix their, their issues rather than right. it being the other way around. The, the government sectors that are dealing with these people, the, the, public, the public at large need to open their ears and start listening to the people in these communities as far as their needs go and preventative measures. And we wouldn't have this big mess. But that is not happening. The reverse is happening, and I'm seeing it. And I'm seeing groups that actually are trying to do good work get discouraged or pushed out simply because they don't align with the political agenda that's happening. You know, so that's a huge problem. Yeah, man. Uh, well, Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence, Marcel Wilson, founder and president of One by One Movement, good friends of the show, brothers of mine. Thank you both for continuing to fight your fight. We'll keep giving you a voice and an opportunity to speak, and uh, hopefully we'll make something happen. When we come back, we're going to talk about gambling and uh, cryptocurrency, and, like, is it the same thing if you're investing? I don't know. Don't think so. We're going to talk to a couple of experts in just a minute. Yonabud, 640. Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us tonight. We're completing segment four of our first hour. Yeah, it's a two-hour show now, so we'll be back from 10 to 11 as well. So make sure you hang in. Don't make plans to go anywhere till we're done. I'll let you know when it's time to get up and go. Anyway, we're going to talk here a little bit about gambling and gaming and online stuff and stuff that I'm probably not that familiar with, uh, cryptocurrency, which is something I'm really trying to understand. i got a bunch of kids in my youth practice that are making fortunes of money, uh, more than I am, uh, trading on things that... Uh, they're not quite sure they're ever going to get their hands on because they're not quite sure what the value of these things are if they want to take the money actually out of a bank account. But we've got a couple of experts coming uh, to join us here right here right now. Uh, but the 2020 Gambling Participating Survey released on July 29th said 0.3% of gamblers say they took part in online gaming and gambling. Addiction specialists told uh, the experts here that the numbers could be greater as gamblers who used the, the websites that they tracked could fear seeking help due to their illegal nature or they were getting help and not telling their psychiatrist and so on about it. People are talking about getting hooked on these things. This guy spent $1,000 per bet on average and ended up in a short period of time being broke with nothing left. I have two guests with us here tonight. One is uh, Josh, who is a friend of the show and um, in recovery. He has has and had a gambling addiction that he's now been uh, doing really well for uh, several years. And uh, Daniel, who's um, uh, sort of a day trader investor, um, guy with a lot of experience with cryptocurrency going back probably from the beginning, uh, also a day, a day trader and a bit of a gambler, but uh, one of those guys that does it uh, for a living and uh, doesn't appear to be out of control and having it um, in line. So we get two versions of what this looks like. And the question, we do have an open board. We will take calls from callers. Do you think online trading of cryptocurrency or stocks is the same as gambling? Is trading gambling or gambling trading? I'm going to start with uh, with uh, Josh, the guy in recovery. How you doing, buddy? How you doing, brother? So you've been to enough uh, uh, enough Gamblers Anonymous meetings and so on. Is, is trading uh, stocks and cryptocurrency online? Does it feel like gambling? Do you think? Well, I don't. I personally don't. I never had the itch for that for trading and stuff like that. Mine was mainly like slots. But uh, I would say, yeah, it is. It is a form of gambling. Okay, uh, Daniel, how are you? Well, Yona, thanks. Thanks for having me on tonight. My pleasure. So, uh, um, you know, you do it for a living. You know, you were a professional uh, poker player at one point, um, and uh, you've uh, done well in the crypto world and stock trading and so on. Um, 
the different, you know, the difference between you and Josh is, you know, you do it for a living. You stop when you need to. Uh, you know, Josh did what he did, uh, you know, to, to, to scratch an itch. Um, is, is crypto trading and, and online trading, do you think, is it the same as gambling for, for a lot of people? Or, or, you know, how many people you think have the strength like you do? Yeah, well, I think at the end of the day, I mean, any type of uh, any time you're investing dollars, uh, there is a form of gambling to it. It's a matter of the discipline behind it and kind of the avenue in which you're, you're willing to risk uh, and what you're willing to risk through there. Uh, so then in the investment side, uh, you know, in a gambling world, it's you're betting on something. And then most times you have uh, minimal control or over, over the outcome, excuse me, uh, of the of the gamble on the right. investment side. Not to say you have much control uh, with what happens with, you know, the markets and, and the volatility of it. However, you have the ability to, to make, uh, I feel, a more calculated decision in regards to where you're putting your dollars and trying to, you know, how they're going to work for you. So a guy, so Josh, uh, go back to Josh here, uh, Josh. Um, so based on what Daniel's saying, you know, the guys that you know, because you've been around uh, the gambling grid for, for a couple of decades till you figured out how to, till we, you know, helped you figure out how to get out the other side of it. But in the meantime, you know, guys that, you know, spend all their time looking at, uh, at the, at the, the, uh, the stats for a horse, let's say, uh, in horse races or to see what teams might be playing football this weekend and, and, you know, who, you know, what quarterbacks are doing what and who's catching what and so on and so forth. You know, that information that Daniel's talking about from a, um, you know, from having knowledge before you place a bet, um, the guys you know, the people that you know, and the, and the life that you led for a long time, um, were people still, I mean, the, the guys with real gambling issues, were they taking the time to actually do the research and, and kind of, you know, hedge their bets, or were they going with, uh, with, with mainly, gut? I would, I would say mainly not. I would say mainly uh, people that were uneducated just going for the thrill of sports and stuff. But there are, there are people that are taking educated guesses in the sports book world. I, I wouldn't say much though. So when you were at the ga- when you spent time in the gambling houses or wherever you were hanging out, I mean, obviously you saw people waging, you know, w- w- placing wagers on all kinds of things. Um, but you know, when you when you look at it, is there a reason why you didn't get the buzz from, let's say, betting on a football game the same as you would? For, I mean, I assume you gambled at some level with uh, with sports a little bit, right? Yep. Same buzz as you got from pulling the arm on the uh, on the uh, one arm bandit. No, the one-armed bandit, I would say, was a higher of a buzz. So, Daniel, listening to what uh, Josh has to say, and, you, you know, you guys are now new friends, uh, listening to what Josh has to say, you know, you're talking about having some control with some information and how that kind of changes the process. You know, Josh is pulling the arm of a, of a you know, slot machine with zero control, right? The thing's going to spin and do what he does. How do you think that's different than, um, you know, some of, the, some of the wagers you might have made uh, based on a gut feel, maybe not so much uh, stats? Right. So I, th- I think it's... Uh... In, in Josh's scenario or in that type of environment, it's more of uh, an instant gratification. Uh, it's, the, it's the instant realization and having uh, that winning or that sense of, of dollars coming in um, kind of on that, on that spin or that time, type of moment where in the investment world, whether it's crypto or the traditional markets, uh, you know, there is a, a little bit of a delay or a lag time between the markets going up and realizing some profits um, you know, in days, weeks, months ahead. Months ahead. 
Okay, so we're gonna. I, I'm gonna let's go, let's spin off to crypto here for a second, okay? I mean, uh, everyone, you know, you're hearing everything from everybody. I'm talking to the kids in my youth practice, and they're constantly talking about betting on, on not betting, investing. You know, five hundred dollars from their bar mitzvah money or the money they made watching, you know, babysitting or you know, lifeguarding in a swimming pool, and buying these, you know, these uh, digital currencies. Uh, for the sake of the of our of our listening audience, we've got a couple of minutes before we go to break, and then we're gonna. If you guys are okay with that, we'll have you come back uh, after. We take our news and stuff uh, after the top of the hour. So, but briefly, g- give us an idea of what this crypto stuff is about. And you know, is it is it more of a gamble than let's say you know betting on uh, not betting but investing, let's say in an Apple stock or some startup? Without a doubt, uh, black and white, once one hundred percent. And uh, you know, from my perspective, the real reason would come down to the lack of regulation in the in the space, uh, uh, the volatility. Coupled with, in most cases, people have no idea in the crypto market what they're investing in. You know, there's 5,000 different crypto projects and coins and tokens that an individual can try to put their money in in hopes that, you know, they're going to make 100x on that. Uh, and then there's a lot of influencers, influencers in the space. You know, you hear the Elon Musks of the world who come on and make a tweet and instantly the, the social media starts to go nuts. There's a lot of buzz and it drives some traction and, and those coins and projects start to pump. Uh, but if Elon Musk gets up, then if Elon Musk gets up one morning and uh, has a tummy ache or has a fight with his wife or girlfriend or whatever he's got going on, and and decides to do something with his position in in the crypto space, that's something that's extremely volatile. There's no way that you can hedge against that, right? Absolutely, and in most cases, uh, the ability to control those losses um, is is out of the control. I mean, unless you're doing stop losses and such and things such of that nature, but in most cases, a lot of people just put their money in and, you know, hear some fantastic stories of turning $100 into thousands and thousands. And yes, can that happen? Without a doubt. Um, does it happen? Uh, yeah, frequently. Depends on the project. But- how many people you know, though, honestly, before we go to break here, how many people do you know that actually get killed in these markets? I mean, I, you know, there's a story here I've got about somebody who actually killed himself because he lost so much money. But, um, you know, people that actually get killed in the market, so to speak, um, well, you know, how, how many of those stories don't we hear? Well, I, I think it's fair to say anytime you start something new uh, with learning comes some failures. And I can say for myself, uh, I lost uh, tons in the infancy stages and trying to wrap my head around uh, the markets, what to do, what not to do. And uh, once you kind of grasp that concept and you can try to rub elbows with some others who are a similar mindset or can teach you some some educational tricks within the, 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 the industry, uh, it becomes a little easier and you can start to hedge those risks. You can start to mitigate any uh, profits and losses and try to be more calculated. I guess we'll come back. We're going to talk to Josh, but uh, we're listening. Think about this over the over the break here, buddy. This stuff must just scare you to death, right? To get sucked into anything like this. So I'm really uh, happy you're not playing in that world. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that you know used to trigger you and 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 get you excited, and see if that matches with sort of how Daniel's feeling, even though it's not a problem for him. But maybe he still gets the same similar rush from his trades. We'll be right back after uh, news and all that stuff in a little bit, and uh, talk some more with my friends uh, Daniel and Josh. We're talking about cryptocurrency and gambling and trading online. Is it gambling or is it like packaged up really nicely so it doesn't look like you got a problem? This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto.
welcome back. For those that don't know that, that sounds like, Josh, you know what that sounds like. That sounds like a slot machine. This is Jonah Bud. We're back to uh, Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us for our second hour. Uh, the question is, you think online trading is the same thing as online gambling, and is it a problem for people? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK. Josh and Daniel are on the line. Josh is in recovery, and Daniel is a professional trader and works in the cryptocurrency uh, world. Um, <clears throat> Josh, real quick, when you uh, just a uh, to start off with, um, you know, you hear Daniel talking about, you know, these uh, massive uh, trades and opportunities, you know, to, to invest uh, small amounts of money in these cryptocurrencies and such. <clears throat> was there a point at any, at any time, even during recovery, where you felt that, you know, maybe this is something that's not really gambling, but I can get ahead of myself? No, I never thought about that because, you know, I am an addict. And uh, if I got back into that, that would be uh, it would be degenerate gambling style. So. I uh, I never actually thought about it. No. So Daniel, when you um, let's get back to you, we're talking about uh, trading and uh, online stuff. Uh, we were talking about cryptocurrency, and it, it seems like it's kind of unrealistic, though. People are investing, you know, relatively small amounts of money and making gigantic gains. Um, does that not feel a little bit like gambling? Do you think? Without a doubt, uh, I would potentially argue that and say I think we're in a point in history now where you know, as we convert or from the, from moving from the paper currency uh, and to a digital type of platform or digital type of monetary system, uh, you know, being once in a lifetime opportunity, you know, those games do exist. Uh, is it, is it out there all the time? No, but uh, they do exist. And a lot of people are just trying to throw a couple of dollars to, to hit that grand slam, so to speak. And what the Yep, please go ahead. about the, ga the gambling and the crypto because there is a very fine correlation between the two. Uh, so much so that even some of the crypto sites, they, they do promote uh, a form of gambling within the site or through their affiliated partners. And they do have uh, gambling sites that tie into the crypto sites where you do have the ability to pay via some sort of cryptocurrency and, and play on those gambling sites, whether it's sports betting or live, live casino, live slots, et cetera. So they do, they do try to um, kind of entice the other, the other one, so to speak. And, and do you think that that's uh, enough to keep people from making a mistake? No, not at all. In fact, I, I think it's, I don't, you don't see in the traditional markets, them having links to online casinos um, when you're investing in, you know, your apples of the world, the DAZ, the, the, the NASDAQ, et cetera. So um, on the crypto space, it's just the, the, unreg the, the unregulated nature of it and the ability for a lot of dollars uh, in a digital currency uh, without being tracked, so to speak, um, you know, th th there is a gambling aspect to it for sure. There's an article here that I'm going to read to both of you guys real quick. I want Josh's response. My husband took his life after a free bet bonus sparked a gaming spiral during lockdown. His name is Luke Ashton. He passed away. Down-to-earth, hardworking family man. Took his own life after his after a bet. His wife said he was in recovery. He was doing very well. And then because of the deceptive bonuses that seemed to come up from these gaming sites, uh, he was a recovering addict. He was thrown off kilter by a free bet. A free bet offered by a betting app last November. His wife said the win. He made. A, he, he used the bonus. Uh, he won. The win sparked the relapse, and he never came back, and uh, ended up taking his life. 
So she's a, a grieving uh, school teacher, the 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 the, uh, the widow. So she's working with the parliamentary petition to try to uh, eliminate some of these uh, free bets and these enticements. Uh, Josh, I know early on in your recovery, um, I had the ability and the privilege to be with you during recovery, uh, yeah. and, uh, and 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 great success. But during during those times, you know, you and I would talk about things popping up on your screen. You can see easily how this guy went sideways, right, with one of these free bets. So what's your thought? around that these enticements that you get from these gaming sites it's absolutely sick how they are allowed and i don't know how they're allowed to do that but for an addict like me myself and the person that took his own life i i i sympathize you know what my heart goes out to him because that extra bonus that they give you the cash you know they they, they would put let's say twenty dollars in your account to start playing that's that's how you relapse and uh your life gets out of control and just spirals out of control and you know you get depressed and uh and then some people take their lives some people do other things and uh, just uh, it just it spirals out of control so with that one one little enticement which should not be allowed and, and, I, agree and I, yeah go ahead please daniel go ahead sorry Yon. i just think the how how easily and how accessible uh corporations or, or betting sites make it for individuals to sign up. Uh, even, you know, we see our 649 um, or Lotterio, uh, the online app, the online casino. Um, it's just too accessible. And I think to, to Josh's point, when an individual has those triggers and they're right in front of them on a constant, uh, I think inevitably, inevitably and eventually uh, chances are, you know, they'll buckle and, and click that button. Well, I thank you both for uh, for being here, Josh. I just want you to know that uh, I really uh, I think uh, it's very impressive that you're still on track, and I hope you both can come back on because I think this is something we need to keep uh, talking about, and we'll have you guys back on again and uh, share some more. So this is uh, uh, Daniel and Josh. Uh, Josh is in recovery. Daniel is a professional uh, gambler and trader, and uh, hopefully it uh, it shared a little information. So I thank you both for joining us, and uh, we'll definitely have you come back. So, you know, do you have a problem? You know, are are you? Do you think you have a gaming problem or a gambling problem? Because there's a host of diagnoses which may include one or more of the following, right? So the need to gamble with increasing amounts of money to feel excitement and receive a higher high. And by the way, you can call in. Do you think gaming and gambling and trading are all the same thing? Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred or triple eight two two five talk. We'd love to hear from you. You can always send an email to road to recovery at six forty toronto dot com. Um, the need to gamble, right? The restlessness or irritability when trying to stop gambling. It feels like your cigarette smoker trying to quit smoking, right? Yeah, anything, anything kind of ringing a bell for you? Anybody that's listening in right now? Repeatedly trying with unsuccessful attempts to stop, control, or reduce one's gaming or gambling. Thinking often about ga- gambling and making plans to gamble. Gambling with feeling well f- when feeling distressed. That's when people seem to do their stuff, right? You get the, you know, that's when you want to get high. That's when you want to get drunk. That's when you want to gamble, sex, text, do whatever else you do to try to make yourself feel better on the other side, but. You know, and when you're when you're doing the things that you're doing to try to make yourself feel better, that's when you need to seek help. That's when you need to ask somebody. So if you're returning to gamble, if you return to gamble again after losing large amounts of money in a way to chase the losses, these are all things that you need to pay attention to. If any of this rings a bell to you, you can always get a hold of me eight seven 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 five eight zero eight anytime after the show, and we'll be happy to help you eight seven seven. Seven 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 five eight zero eight. You can call right now four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred, and Corey will connect us. 
Lying to loved ones to conceal gaming and gambling activities. Absolutely. You, you know, as soon as you start lying, stealing, and cheating, you know you have a problem. If you're experiencing relationship issues or work problems related to your gambling, right? If you're constantly dealing with your losses and depressed around your losses, right? Then these are things that you need to understand. Um, you know, you're, you're, spun, you're, you know, you're definitely spiraling out of control. You don't have a handle on these things. If you're depending on others for money to spend on gambling and borrowing monies from friends or family using credit cards, it sounds the same as someone who's got a heroin problem. Sounds the same as someone who's got an alcohol problem. Sounds the same, right? It sounds the same. And what I'm suggesting here is often somebody with gaming addictions, gambling addictions, feel like it's, you know, they, for them they feel it's equivalent to taking, you know, taking a drug or, or, or having a drink. And it's the same appetite. It's an immediate fix. Gamblers' behaviors change based on if they win or lose. It's, it changes their state of mind. The whole, the whole concept, the whole vicious circle develops an increasing craving for the activity itself, right? Just the activity itself is almost enough. All the same while, the ability to resist drops. So as the craving grows, the intensity and the frequency of the inability to, to control yourself against the urges weakens those, and they end up in a really bad place. So addiction has, can come full circle. It, it, it's not just psychological. It can be personal, physical, social, has professional impacts on all, all kinds of people. So if you're finding that gaming and gambling is something that you're having a hard time with, if you're finding that you can't pull yourself away from a wager, it could be, as, it could be you know, rushing to, place a, you know, to buy Lotterio tickets, and, and, and not just the Lotterio tickets. It's not the amount of money or what you're actually wagering on. It's the jonesing, it's the desire, it's the craving to make sure you get that ticket before before it closes. Like, I got to rush and get that ticket. And you see people standing in line in, in convenience stores, you know, Wednesday nights and, and Friday nights when the, the, the big draws are, or Saturday nights, I don't even know, when the big draws are, and, and people are, are, are really looking to, to, to win. And, and it's not just buying a couple of lottery tickets like my wife and I do. It's, you know, buying $100 worth of lottery tickets and going from convenience store to convenience store, trying to spread your opportunities from, you know, the lucky, the lucky, uh, uh convenience store in Sault Ste. Marie for perhaps different than the, the lucky store in, in, you know, some other neighborhood. So it's a problem and you need to pay attention to it. And if you think you have a problem, let us know and we'll do what we can to help you. When we come back, speaking of, uh, doing what we can to help you, we're talking on this road to recovery here on 640, the return to the tyranny of suits and commutes. We're going to talk about going back to work. It's an open board. You're welcome to call. How do you feel about going back to the office or workplace? Is it something you're good with or not? When you come back, we're going to talk about that and other stuff. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. Share your story. Call 416-870-6400 now. Road to Recovery on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Yona, and I appreciate your time and that you know you have other choices, other places you could be listening to, but you choose to listen to us, and thank you so much for tuning in. We know that uh, we're doing our best to make a difference, and uh, having you uh, share with us is the way that we know that we're making a difference. 416-870-6400 or 888 talk That's how you get to play with me live and in person. It's 1018-ish or so. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your kids, your pets? 
your parents, you need to know where people are, especially these days. So if you're not sure where they are and you think they might be in danger, certainly call 911. Or if you need some help, give us a call here, 416-870-6400, and we'll do what we can to sort it out. So here's the question. Call me. Let me know what you think. You happy to go back to work? You ready to get back on the roads? The story is suits and commutes. You ready to get dressed <laughs> and actually put on your clothes? I had to get dressed this week. Honestly, I had to go out and, and do some stuff. I had to wear long pants. I haven't worn long pants pretty much most of the pandemic. I'm working in, you don't need to know all of this, but I'm working in shorts and a T-shirt most of the time. Um, I'd have different T-shirts so because I do virtual therapy, so I try to have nice T-shirts that people find interesting with different kinds of movie things on it and cartoons and so on. But for the most part, I'm in, I'm in like... Sweat shorts, sweat shorts and a t-shirt. How to get dressed, how to put on a pair of pants and a, a shirt with a collar with buttons and everything. And it felt weird. And I couldn't wear sandals. I had to wear shirts with, 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 with laces. Like seriously, not ready for this. Are you ready for this? I want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. As September approaches and Toronto employers develop return to office policies, Desk job, work, desk job workers are slowly finding out if they will retain or lose the flexibility the work arrangements to go back and forth. The much-publicized return-to-office policies signal the freedom to choose. Policy is more likely to be the exception of the rule. According to expert market and analysis and analytics company, Toronto's pre-pandemic commute times ranked second worst globally. Like, no kidding. I've sat on those highways. Have you? 416-870-6400. If you're tired of sitting on a lot of, on, sitting in the highway for hours to and from work or on the 407 or the 404 or any of these connections, 400 series highways and, and sit for hours during rush hour, it's insanity. It's just insanity. You know, people sit on the train every day going in. People, you know, come back and forth to work and, and it's a whole different experience today than it used to be. But it was for the, now the trip is the averaging 96 minutes per round trip and exceeding two hours for 17% of Torontonians are spending two hours, an hour there and back. I know people that spend an hour and a half going from the east side of the, the highway to Mississauga, Mississauga back to Whitby or places like that. You know, I guess perhaps, you know, TTC is probably the way to go or transit is probably the way to go. The psychological impact isn't, un, isn't insignificant. According to Jonathan Haidt, he's a psychologist. He wrote a book called The Happiness Hypotheses, and it explains that commuting disappoints people's optimism for order. It's an external, uh, it's uh, an external environment that never becomes fully. They never become fully adapted to. DTC commuters who shudder at the thought of signal issues and relief buses know exactly uh, what's going on, right? So. The, I, you know, people never felt worse, according to, uh, listen, Sophia's chiming in here. I never felt worse than when I was commuting two hours per day for school. And, uh, and Corey's saying that he's on the train often and it's, it's taking, uh, it's taking more than, uh, you know, time than it used to before two hours to back and forth to school. Uh, Sophia used to live in Bowmanville. Like really, Sophia, you lived in Bowmanville two and a half hours, one way to go to school. No, you're reading the chat wrong. Yona. let me clear it up for the listeners. Corey Please. used to live in Bowmanville, two and a oh. half hours to work. I used to live, <laughs> and Corey is here. Hey, okay. you got me? Oh, perfect. Corey, are you kidding me? Two and a half hours on the way yeah, to work? I, like, like, so like I live in Oshawa now, and I only live about five minutes away from the GO station. So it's only an hour-long commute for me to get from home to office, which is great. But I used to live in Bowmanville. It was walk to the bus, wait for the bus. The bus was 30 minutes. Wait for the train. That was another 20 minutes. The train was an hour, and the time it took to get from Union to the office. So that was two and a half hours one way. 
Wow. So yeah, I feel that. I feel that so much. But I get it. I mean, transit is stressful enough for most people if they're not used to it. And I've been taking the transit every single day, going into Chorus Key pretty much five nights a week since this pandemic began. And I remember some nights, you know, I was the only person on the train, which was they're freaky getting, enough. Get, they're, but getting, now, they're, get, they're getting busier now, though, right? Oh, they're getting a lot busier now. And, you know, it's it's that stress of the pandemic still. You know, people still don't know how to wear a mask properly. They don't know how to do this or that. And it's all new. A lot of people who haven't been on transit in a long time don't understand that things have changed. And so, yeah, a lot, so right. So a lot of people, th a lot of people are, are really stressing over going to work and, and this whole concept of, you know, travel and getting dressed and, you know, being away from the home they've been in for the last year and a half quite comfortably. So 40%, 47% of working Canadians consider stress in the workplace to be the most powerful stress of their daily life. That's according to the Canadian Centre for Occupational Health and Safety. Not all stress is bad, according to the experts. A little stress can be help you focus. But when stress becomes persistent and exceeds your ability to cope, it can interfere with your productivity. So after a two-and-a-half you know, hour ride for someone like Corey, who's you know, exceptional at his job, um, but a very laid-back kind of guy, maybe very different than me, <clears throat> a two-and-a-half-hour commute for me, I, there's no way I could function at work. I would need an hour just to come down. So, you know, things like staff layoffs and low salaries, excessive workloads, challenges with coworkers, unreasonable work deadlines, lack of control over job-related decisions, people that are micromanaging you, conflicting demands from different management, lack of social support. These are all the things that people are worried about, right? And they're, people are concerned that, um, that the, 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 these whole, these, this whole situation of adding the travel component to it just really adds to their anxiety and their irritability and depression. So some of these workplace stresses are like apathy, you know, fatigue, difficulty concentrating. If you have any of these, you need to get some help around it, by the way. High blood pressure, weight gain, muscle tension, headaches. God, I get off, I get out, I used to get off the, the highway with, with a pounding headache and stress in my neck. Like I just, you know, just wanted to like stick a fork in the back of my neck to get rid of the pain. I didn't, obviously. Uh, insomnia, substance abuse is way up with people that have anxiety and issues around going to work. So you have to understand the expectations, right, of, of what's expected of you. Avoid any conflict with employees while you're at work. These are tips to manage workplace stress, right? Um, keep the, you know, be able to, to manage these employee relationships. Establish boundaries, right? You should do that in life generally anyway. Make sure that you have boundaries around when you can work and when you can't. And, you know, don't push yourself just because everyone in the office you know, is working uh, crazy hours, but you've got to get home because you got things to do and control yourself, right? And you got to, you know, get healthy and sleep and eat properly. So you got to have to, re you have to release control. Understand that you have no control over a lot of things at work because unless you own the place and even then you don't have control because you have to rely on your staff and so on. So accept the fact that you can release the control and don't try to keep uh, the expectation that control is something you think you have. And develop stress-reducing habits, things that help. Take a walk at lunchtime, you know, uh, do some deep breathing exercises. Maybe get to a gym class or a yoga class if you can during a break during the day from work. Uh, exercise is probably the best stress reliever and mood enhancer. Um, and and po focus, right? Focus on the things you need to do and, and get out of there when you're done. A good night's sleep is huge. Taking time off work when you need it. Ask for it if you need it. These days especially. Your employers are going to understand. They're going to understand what it means to get that extra time these days. Talk to your manager. Have an open conversation about how you feel. They won't fire you. They can't fire you if you have mental health issues. It's just it's, it's not possible. It's against the law.
Seek support, right? Get support around the help that you need. Talk to people, your friends, your colleagues, your met, your, your, your relatives. Get the kind of support and help you need if you think you need it. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's something wrong with not asking for help. And that's really the issue. So if you feel stressed about getting to work, just keep it unchecked, man. It's just a job, right? It's just a job. Unless you're doing what I'm doing, chances are you're not saving lives. And if you are, keep that in perspective too, just like I do, because that's what this is all about. Speaking of um, keeping life in perspective, there's a study, a really interesting study that talks about an actual financial return on investment for families and parents that actually parent their kids in the right way. So when we come back from a break here in just a second, we're going to be talking to uh, Bonnie Sue Solomon. She's a master's in, she has her master's in social work. She's a social worker working with uh, kids in high school, university, families, um, been around, good friend of the show, good friend of mine. So she's going to join us, I, am, I think, from vacation somewhere in the mountains. So uh, maybe we'll hear a little partying in the background if we're lucky. But when we come back, we're going to chat with her about uh, this investment on kids in sensitive parenting in childhood creates a 13-fold cost savings. I want to know what that means from a psychological perspective in terms of the other benefits that you can't count and put in your pocket or your wallet. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back. Thank you for joining us. This is Yona. You're on the road to recovery. We're talking about all kinds of stuff. Right now, we're talking about a, a, a study that I read that said that sensitive parenting in childhood creates 13-fold cost savings. And it's a really, it's about how much money you can save. The average cost for children raised by the most responsive parents are well under $3,000 compared to more than 30000 for children raised by less responsive parents. Uh, the book is called A Good Investment, Long-Term Cost Savings of Sensitive Parenting in Childhood. It was published, uh, it's actually a published article, not a book, in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. Uh, talk about <clears throat> sensitive or responsive parenting is a style often described as heightened parental sensitivity and responsiveness to children, distress and affectionate and engaged style. They use firm uh, rather than the hard discipline. Uh, the study assessed, though, here, we're going to get to some real numbers. Um, the results of the study showed that males who eat, who, who were at older age, an older age, were eligible for free school meals uh, and who lacked sensitive parenting all predicted greater total costs. The difference in social education and health care costs between adolescents who exposed to more sensitive care versus less sensitive care estimated to be $27,000 compared to $2,000 for someone whose parents are seem to have it going on in what are called, uh, I guess, sensitive parents. I have Bonnie Sue Solomon. She's joining us here tonight. Bonnie Sue, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Hi, Yona. Nice to, uh, nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear yours, too. So you're somewhere in the mountains. Is, is it fun and everybody having a good time, or is it like pandemic blues? No, everybody's having a great time. No, uh, no blues. Still the pandemic, but um, hopeful. Very hopeful. Amazing. So tell me what we're talking about. What is this thing about sensitive parenting? Sensitive parenting, it's, um, I think it's being approachable, being mindful, being respectful. Like um, it's being sensitive, like you would be to, to a friend, being respectful to your, to your children, um, really actively listening, um, asking questions, not assuming, just bring 
very, very present and, um, and really noticing things and creating an environment, a safe environment for children to come and, and talk to you. So it's really creating a, a very safe space, um, being very sensitive to, to different children's needs. Not every, every child, even you know, in a, within one family, has the same needs. So being very sensitive and being, being there, being present. So how many times have you heard from a, pa- a family, um, you know, uh, how many times have you heard from a family and they got a couple of kids, two or three kids, and there's that one kid that, you know, I always call the kid that needs more attention, but everyone calls it the troubled kid. Um, so you got two or three kids. There's always that one that needs that special attention and doesn't seem to get it. Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about the sensitivity of recognizing that each kid needs something different? I think each kid does need something different. And, and, and a lot of families, one kid might require um, some, something more intensive uh, for different, perhaps for some mental health issues. But it's really, really important to, to make sure that you're giving, if you can, some equal, equal time in a different way to the, to the other children. Because they, they notice and they feel it. They feel really like they, 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 they're not getting the attention or the time that, that they need. So it's really important to try to balance um, that, which is often really, really difficult. So it's, it's, it's difficult, but if families can also get some other supports, because it really does take a village, right? So in terms of supports, whether it's um, professional supports, um, whether it's in the school or community, neighbors, friends, um, really to, to be able to balance it so you can be there for, not just for, not just for everybody in the family, but also for themselves so they can be the best parents that they can be to their children. So is sensitive parenting something that you teach parents when, or teach families when you do your family work? I mean, you obviously see, you know, kids and, and, and young adults at various levels, and, you know, I know that we work together. And, you know, there, there's, there's stuff that, you know, parents need to know. Are you able to do that in your practice when you see situations? Are you able to educate parents? I mean, one would think that it's kind of a natural thought that you should be a sensitive, caring, you know, respectful, compassionate parent. But it seems like not, every, not everybody does that, right? Yeah, I believe that most parents are sensitive and caring and really love their children. People have different ways of showing it. And I think, you know, my conversations are are often around impact, the impact of, you know, some of their actions or lack of. um, But I do believe, and I think parents need to be also validated for how difficult it is for them. And uh, and perhaps they didn't get that, you know, when they were growing up. So it, it requires lots of different types of conversations. But um, I think it's important, you know, not to, to parent blame and to really try to get at uh, the root of what's making it difficult for them to be there in the way that they really want to be there. Because I really do believe that that people have good parents have good the best of intentions and want to be there for their kids. And sometimes they just don't know how. So it's 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 giving them also a space, uh, um, you know, a, a safe space to talk and also to come up with different strategies, ways, you know, that they can be there in a, in a you know, in a different way for their kids. Do you have some tips, some some simple tips, maybe a couple, two, three tips for parents to try to become a little more responsive or a little more understanding, kind of a, a the version of the parent that we're talking about in this model? Because yeah. are there are there are there tips that you can tell parents to look for so they can do a better job? Yeah, well, I think it's also to let the, their kids know that they're human too, that they've made mistakes. You know, even myself as a therapist, I you know I let you know I like whether it's clients or or you know interns that I supervise that I that I make mistakes. So it's important to let you know your kids know that you're human, um, and ask how they can be helpful, how how I could be helpful. Um, it's really it's 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 being in tune. Um, 
not looking for strength. There's always something positive to, to find and, and to look for. So it's really, uh, and not pushing too much, you know, so also giving, yeah. giving that space and independence and some autonomy um, and, but just creating a, an environment where kids want to come talk to, to them about whatever it is that's going on in their lives. So I just do, uh, go ahead, please continue. No, in terms of, you're, I think you're asking if it can be taught. And I, like I said, I do believe that just because people aren't showing the sensitivity doesn't mean they're not sensitive inside. Sometimes it's really killing the parent and, they, and they're just having this, they're, they're stuck and they're, something's getting in the way of them really being the type of parent that they want to be. And so it's also about self-care for that parent. You know, they're dealing with a lot of, a lot of things. They could be, you know, exhausted and stressed and concerned. And, and so it's really important for parents to also be getting support for themselves and to really practicing self-care. So I've got a, couple, a few minutes left. I want to ask just to turn, a, I hate to use the word pivot, so I'm going to say we're going to turn on, a, on another subject here. Uh, what, concern, you know, what, what concerns do you have uh, with kids, especially you know, univers- uh, high school kids, middle school kids? What concerns do you have now about them going back to school uh, as a counselor and as a therapist that you see kids in various forms, in, in various environments? What's your concern, do you think? What's your biggest concern about kids going back to school, university? Yeah, well, I think it's their concern, not my concern as much, but they're, they, what I'm hearing is they're very, they're really, they're anxious about, they, you know, they, they haven't connected with their friends in a long time, or at least in the way that they used to. So they really lost connections and are very isolated. So they're, they're very nervous about, you know, reestablishing friendships and, you know, so they're feeling very much alone. Uh, they're also worried about, you know, about their academics. A lot of them have been struggling, um, studying remotely. Um, so they're worried about, you know, academics. Um, and they're also they're also worried about they're also worried about COVID. So um, yeah. so I am I'm I'm confident that they're going to get the support that they that they need. There's a lot going on behind the scenes in in all different levels of, of schools, and there's you know so there's a lot of support out there. So um, so my concern I, I'm I'm more hopeful that they're going to get back you know back into schools. They're going to get you know involved back in their act, not just with their hopefully with friends, but also with activities, whatever it is that they, you know, with their clubs and activities and, and get back to, you know, to, to, to living and then thriving. And um, so it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, of course there's concerns, there's, you know, there was concerns, you know, prior to going back to school. So, you know, concerns about also routine. They're not used to having a routine, you know, they're, they're sudden, really yeah. off, off their schedule. So getting back into routine, sleep, you know, sleep hygiene, um, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of students, you know, um, were impacted by depression and anxiety. So, yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about, you know, those things, but I think there's, there's definitely a lot of support in schools, definitely in schools and in the community and, 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 and hopefully their, their families as well can get them, you know, be supportive and, and get them to the right other supports as well. So in less than a minute here, I want to ask you a question. Who supports you? Where do you, you know, you're out there helping lots of people. And uh, I think you've asked me the same question before, you know, who supports me? You know, who supports you? Are you, are you doing what you need to do to keep it together? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I feel like I am. I really, um, people ask me this all the time. I, I practice self-care. I like to run. I, um, I like, I, today I took a swim. I really, I find exercise is really good for me, for the mind, and yep. definitely yep. Having, having a really great support family and friends and, and loved ones and, and colleagues like you, Yona, um, are a really big part. We, you know, we, with colleagues, we, we, do, we debrief cases, we consult with each other, and yep. um, I feel like, 
feel really blessed to be part of such a, a wonderful community um, in, in so many senses. So, um, yeah, so, and I think that we all need to, we, we all need to take care of ourselves in order to be the best that we can, whether we're, whether we're a parent or ther- with, with a therapist um, and, um, or, or a friend. And, you know, I think, anyway, self-care is, 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 is always the, the message and, and having self-compassion and compassion for others. Well, you're always a wonderful guest and you're a great friend. I want you to get back to whatever fun and party you're having and make sure that you have a little uh, sunshine for me at the at part of this. And I know you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and watch the sun come up. So um, I want to know what that looks like when we talk again. Thank you so much, Bonnie Sue Solomon. She's a master's in social work. She's a social worker, been doing it for a very long time, colleague of mine and someone I would highly recommend uh, if you needed to talk to someone with her skill set, which is pretty widespread, I must say. When we come back from from a break here, uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Jacques Lee. He's um, involved with um, geriatric medicine uh, at Mount Sinai Hospital, and he's working on something for lonely people. And I just thought it was a really nice story and something that we could end with tonight. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Lee and see what he's got going on. But uh, interesting story of how we're working to help lonely people, not just for their medical uh, needs, but understanding their mental needs as well. Yonabud, 640. Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us for our last segment tonight. I just want you to know I appreciate all of you. You're the best audience ever, and we love you, and we really want to be here to be a part of your lives any way that we can. You know, I read an article this week that I really, really, really liked it a lot, and it was kind of a nice story, and I want to try to end our segments, uh, our shows, with something nice so it's not all so heavy, right? Hospital emergency department uh, are filled with lonely people. The Sinai, this Sinai doctor is on a mission to help him. His name is Dr. Jacques Lee. He's a guest with us here tonight. He'll be with us shortly. Um, he noticed an elderly man in the emergency department at Mount Sinai, and, um, you know, he's he just realized that people were feeling isolated isolated and confined and so on. So he was so he felt so depressed, this guy. And Lee said of the encounter with the early days of the pandemic, it shockingly brought into realization how impactful isolation and loneliness are. More than a year later, Lee, a geriatric emergency physician and a 27-year veteran of medicine, is now busy building a research project around the pilot telephone line for seniors out of Sinai. So basically, I guess like a kid's hotline, but for seniors. The line scheduled to open up in September will operate using hospital volunteers who will check in on seniors' patients identified as being high risk of loneliness and social isolation. Dr. Jacques Lee, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks. uh, Thanks for inviting me on. No, my pleasure. First of all, I want to uh, I want to tell you that you rock, and uh, and uh, the work that you're doing is uh, way above and beyond. It's definitely out of the box thinking, right? So, um, give me an idea, Doc, how you kind of came to this thought. I mean, you you know, you sort of saw it, uh, but how do you translate addiction? Um, excuse me, emergency medicine and the stuff that you're dealing with, actually gluing people back together and doing all the things you do on a day by day basis to keep people healthy and so on. Um, but you know, what is it? that sort of got your attention and said, hey, these people are lonely and we really need to help them? Well, well thanks. thanks. Um, so my, my mission, I'm focused on care of older people in the emergency department. Right. And uh, this, like I said, this case that you discussed, and frankly, uh, on my you know, 4 a.m. shift last Wednesday, I had another case, and older people 
who are understandably especially nervous about social isolation, you know, um, and are just so cut off from everything else. Um, my job, I'm a scientist. So, um, you know, this, we, we had a, I've got a full research program. We were actually looking uh, at a bedpan to try and detect delirium. That's, that's my main uh, line of work. And when, Wow. Um, COVID, yeah. When COVID came along, we weren't allowed in the hospitals. We had to shut it down and come up with something else. And this case prompted me. It's like, look, so what can we do that's safe, that doesn't yeah. involve, uh, you know, uh, face-to-face contact, you know? Um, and so I actually um, uh, found uh, an Australian uh, uh, scientist who had been look, piloting a, a telephone call. And I've worked with volunteers in the hospital and the emergency departments for, in the last 20 years. They're incredible people. And yep. they're also feeling a great loss. Whereas they used to be going into the emergency department and helping people, you know, th- they got cut out of that too. So we put two and two together. We got these. Um, hospital volunteers now, and the way we're setting it up, we're going to look at whether talking over a telephone uh, is good, good enough. Whether adding a video chat is even better um, yep. than than uh, than nothing. And you know, like I'm a I'm a scientist, so I just because I think something's great, that's not good enough. So we're going to prove it in our study that's going to be starting uh, this September. Yeah, but you, you've been you've been in Emerge long enough, and you've seen horrible situations. I'm sure, as I have in my practice, and in the years I've been on the street, you know, you see terrible situations with families, and it's sad and it's terrible, and you see lonely people who don't have anybody. Um, but it just, it sort of makes sense, right? To the you know, to me as a therapist, I'm sure to you as a scientist, but just to you as a kind of a human being that interacts with people in a dark place most of the time, um, it just makes sense that reaching out to lonely people would reduce their need to come to hospital. I know people that when I used to work in Emerge uh, doing crisis work off and on for years, you know, people would come in just for the company. Absolutely. That's, that's been shown that a lot of people, you know, that's one of the problems. We don't measure loneliness, you know, if somebody shows up in the emergency, it's not exactly clear why they're there, you know, and, you know, rather than having empathy for somebody being so lonely that they would come to an emergency department, you know, we tend to be dismissive or even angry, you know, like, why are you wasting my right. time instead of recognizing that, that great human need, you know? So, uh, yeah, they, they, they automatically get a psych eval, right? The next thing you know, you got the psych department. They're waiting four hours to get a psych eval. And at the end of the day, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not determined to have any real heavy psycholo- psychological or psychiatric issues. They're just lonely and sad. Uh, we don't have a measure for lonely and sad. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's what, you know, part of this work is. Um, you know, my, like I said, my work with the disease of delirium, people don't measure it, so they don't recognize yeah. it. Same yeah. thing with loneliness. And there's, you know, there's a, we're going to ask a six item screening question, you know, that yeah. uh, has been validated and shows, shows us if people really are at risk for loneliness, you know, and then we're going to connect them with the volunteers. And, you know, another important thing is um, I'm trying, like right now I've got 18 volunteers, you know, I need to get to about 26, right? But if, each volunteer worked with one person, right? Right. That would help 26 people, right? So right. what the program does, rather, is work with them over a 12-week period to try and give them the, the tools to improve their social integration, you know, to, to reach out, yep. to join, you know, so, and, and to pick goals that are meaningful to the person so that, you know, every 12 weeks we can roll over and reach some more people. 
And then what do you do? You have you have some kind of exit study or some study through the process to to measure the effectiveness on the people that you're you're actually interacting with the lonely the quote unquote lonely seniors as you as it may be. Yeah, if you want to talk about the science, I love it, man. But you know, we start with measuring the the their loneliness at baseline, right? Right. Start, they go through the program after 12 weeks. So hang on, hang on, hang on, go, go backwards because I'm not a scientist. I'm, you know, a mm. bit of a therapist, a bit of an investigator, but nothing close to a scientist. So what's, we say a baseline, right? What's the baseline for loneliness, bro? Like how, how, do, how does that, like what, what, what's good? What, what, okay, well, uh, technically it's called the DeJong loneliness scale, you know, and basically okay. it, asks, it, it, it asks you six, six uh, simple questions and yeah, I won't be able to pull them up right now because I'm nervous, but uh, you know, okay. the very basic questions, are you satisfied with your social interactions? You know, are you satisfied yeah. with your, your contacts? And we know if you sort of s- score, you know, more than two on this scale that you're at high risk for loneliness. And, you know, if you're a four, five or six, then you're, you're very lonely. And so we're going to measure how lonely they are. We're going to administer the program for 12 weeks. We're going to try and help them make their own connections. Um, and we're going to measure how effective it was by seeing what happened on their loneliness scale. We're going to measure a bunch of other things, like the depression, their quality of life, you know. Um, but, you know, the primary thing is, did this help you? Did this um, make you feel less lonely? The pilot work in Australia seemed to be effective, you know. But, right, but they can't. Uh, they canceled it, right? They, they stopped it. I read in the article that they, well, they, they, didn't they stop it. It wasn't so successful. No, that's not true. It's 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 been rolled out in different programs. Um, okay, they they got uh, they actually got their corporate people, but uh, they did run into problems with COVID, like everything else. But our program yeah. is completely COVID independent. Right. So let me ask you: Can we? Uh, is, are you cool to come back and visit and uh, share with us every once in a while about this kind of stuff? And because uh, uh, you do a great job, by the way. You said you're a little nervous, but you're a natural. So uh, first of all, I, 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 real quick question: Because I have to go because yeah. we're at the end of the night, but uh, I could stay on with you all night. Do you have elderly parents? That's a great question. Um, I've got a 90 year old uh, father who's taking care yeah, of man. 83 year old yeah. mother, and listen, yeah. even better, they were divorced for 25 years. And, oh uh, no way! They got back together three years ago. And oh, uh, that's amazing. And my 90 year old father is the caretaker, so he's a cardiologist. But I'm most proud of him for being a caregiver. Amazing. Well, you def- definitely come from good stock. I mean, I got a 95-year-old father shortly in a couple of weeks and 94-year-old mom and they take care of each other. My concern is that they might kill each other, but I've been worried about that for 40 <laughs> been worried about that for 45 years. Dr. Jacques Lee, uh classy guy. Uh I know you're having Yeah, yeah, yeah man, absolutely. Uh, we're looking for volunteers. So if you're over 60, yes. 60 and over and you have a tablet and you want to volunteer, uh, reach out to our uh, volunteer coordinator. Her name is Carissa Chin, K-A-R-I-S-S-A-C-H-I-N, Carissa Chin. Uh, yeah. and got a phone number for her? Yeah, 416-586-4800 and extension 7455, because we really need some more volunteers. Amazing. Well, we'll do what we can to uh, ring something, get something together for you. There's thousands of people listening, so maybe you'll find a, a half a dozen that uh, want to help. Uh, we'll have you back for sure. Enjoy the rest of your uh, holiday. I understand you're somewhere beautiful, so enjoy yourself, my friend, and uh, you're a class act. I just want you to know that, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you, ascent, uh, talking to you again. Uh, this is Jonah Bud. We're coming to the end of the show. Got to go so fast. Even two hours isn't enough. We need three. 
We need like three, four. We got to go all night. I think that's the way to do this. Anyway, you guys are awesome. Thank you for joining us tonight. Make it an incredible week. Love the one you're with. Make sure you hug those that are close to you and know that I care. And uh, that's why we're here because we want to see if we can make a difference. We'll see you soon next week. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.